talks about money being like the danger of money in and of itself, right? Because it could lose all value um, or not be acknowledged uh, as, as being valuable by the community. And ultimately that has happened, you know, a state's economy through massive inflation or massive stagflation or whatever can lose value overnight. Or we could see as with something new like crypto, like crypto yeah. can, because it has nothing more, the only kind of material function you can give it is its own accounting for itself, right? Its own system of um, marking its own transactions, which may not be able to ha be described as use value, right? Um, it, it, it can suddenly be completely devalued. Right. But at the same time, the dollar has gone on, remained as an abstraction, right, as something that is determined by the power of the state. Right. And this only amplifies the points that uh, Marx is making, because ultimately, um, why is the American dollar the dollar of international exchange? Right. When he talks about it in the book, he's talking about, well, when we go to the world stage, when we go to the world economy, we have to return the gold to bullion, right, for this more kind of abstract form. And he, and he gives this um, example of India where he points out from in this period from the 1600s to the mid-1700s, people were wondering how are things so cheap coming from India? How are commodities so cheap coming from India? And he finds that it was because they had buried an enormous amount of silver. I think it was like, I, I, I can't even guess, it was like 120 million pounds worth or something like that. But, um, but his point is that this circulation, as it becomes more abstract, um, becomes more, it, it, it gives an illusion, one that Ricardo and Smith, as mentioned earlier, mistake, right? That you cannot, again, read the value from the behaviors of commodities, nor the money, nor the circulating medium in and of itself. It's only within the context of, of labor. But what you can read is um, various factors which materially make the market function. And so we list these three factors. Um, the factors are one, movement of prices, two, the quantity of commodities, and three, the velocity of the circulating medium. So as we define the velocity of the circulating medium, this simply means how quickly exchanges are happening. And this is aided by various types of coinage or various denominations of bills, right? Um, the quantity of commodities, the level of production, and then the movement of prices is going to be how in relative exchanges those commodities are valued at a given time. And so like there are all these relative relations um, which uh, determine whether the circulating medium, as he describes it, this immediate entity is constant, whether there is a crisis of money, whether there is less whether less things are sold or more things are sold, all the behaviors of the market are determined by these factors. 
Well, and this goes into your point about India and like this burying of silver, um, because it's similarly it's similarly replicated by, um, you know, this sort of proto capitalists, right? Or, or you can look at us like the Medici's if you want to even talk about outside of the capitalist sphere, um, where you take gold out of the system of exchange by having it cast as a gold statue or jewelry or um, you know whatever luxury item which is ostensibly takes the gold out of the marketplace by it being this aesthetic feature in your household or something um, and the use of that is that it makes gold more valuable right and in ever the case that you need more gold, well, you can always just melt down the statue if that it becomes yes. worth more than the statue does, right? And of course, we see with the art world today that sometimes that has the opposite effect where the statue becomes worth more than gold because it's mm-hmm. a golden statue, right? And, yes. um, and so this is the interplay that Marx is starting to observe. And again, this is all about relationships. This is not the uh imminent or the integral feature of money or gold or whatever it is but he's noticing that this is a, a complex series of relationships and depending on how we change our relationship to these integral parts changes how the system works absolutely and so the producer of the commodity right the, the technologist the farmer um the um let's call it, let's just refer to them as the petty bourgeois store owner, right? Whomever, or not store owner, let's say small factory owner to be more accurate, right? Whomever is, uh, is producing these objects now has like a new demand on them. And so as, um, as Marx describes, um, before a person can go and, um, you know, uh, before they can hoard their money, right, as he describes it, before they can acquire tons of value, um, or before they can go out and buy tons of objects to acquire this aesthetic valence that you're describing, right, like the Medici's, they have to wait and sell their commodities to acquire and build this hoard right it's an inter- it's an internal contradiction of the market that necessarily you have to be in stasis in one way or another right until you acquire a certain amount of money which we haven't gotten to yet but this is sort of one of his most acute and critical observations which is that there is this accumulation of money that is an externality to the market. So on the one hand, you have the totality of circulation of which everything, every commodity exchange is a part and of which you can say there is this whole of money in circulation. But then at the same time, there is the specific function of the producer as they bring labor with them to bring value to their commodities. As they use that, to acquire more money for that commodity and then put that money aside before eventually then putting that money again to buy things, but often to buy things to then gain more value as you were describing. So like 
this new contradiction where people are removing money from the market so that they can hoard it and gain more buying power and then using that buying power to gain more control over the determinations of value within the market becomes um, acute. Exactly. And he, you know, rightly so calls this a crisis. And um, I really love this quote of his because it gets to both the um, sort of economic crisis that we're describing, the economic mm -hmm. crisis and contradiction of capitalism, but also the kind of philosophical um, doppelganger that exists within that crisis. He says, there is an antithesis imminent in the commodity between use value and value, between its you know value it has for us and its value it's ascribed through exchange and money, between private labor, which must simultaneously manifest itself as directly social labor, and a particular concrete kind of labor, which simultaneously counts as merely abstract universal labor, between the conversion of things into persons and the conversion of persons into things. And I bring this up because this is, this is what capital is about. This is what Karl Marx is about. This is about through this abs process of abstraction. And I think this is important because certain um, maybe more um, one for one translations of that last sentence is uh, the personification of things and the reification of persons. Yeah. So in in making my concrete labor, right, in, in being a producer, I am I am taking that labor that has a, an actuality and making it abstract. Yeah. And through making my labor abstract, I'm reificating my person. My yeah. My person is becoming a thing, but it's not just a one-sided process. And I think that's what a lot of people who study Marx forget. The personification I'm taking from my own concrete labor that's being abstracted and being reified is then given, whether it's to the commodity or to money, and is personifying that. It's an, it, you know, that's where the fetish character comes from. It's, it's, it's becoming alive. Yes. The labor becomes a value in and of itself as part of the production process, right? Because it, because part of it in its determination of efficiency, of use of time, of scale, etc., transforms relative um, functions within the market, then turns around and changes the lives of the people who are participating in it. If one's labor is going directly to producing, as I mentioned earlier, a violin, right? And they directly and singularly um, relate to another person to sell that violin, then, then the level uh, at which your labor is valued is quite self-determined. But when it's a, a hundred men at a dock, making sure that a vessel carrying a certain amount of things that are going to be taken to another country and sold for another, uh, for, uh, for another type of money, right? Suddenly that the way that the, that person controls their own life 
is abdicated. It's taken from them. And while he doesn't make it so explicit here, it's all laid out in full, right? Oh, completely. I mean, and he goes on to say, you know, but and he reminds us, money itself is a commodity, an external object capable of becoming the private property of any individual. So, you know, the thing that's the commodity that's whose use value is supposed to be the the mitigating thing to make exchanges easier is still a commodity and thus can become private property. And he says, thus the social power, the social power of your and my labor power becomes the private power of private persons. Absolutely. And, and now we're faced with it so intensely because at, at his time, yeah, there were there were there was the aristocracy. Mm-hmm. There was this kind of small percentage based on familial lines and very obtuse relationships that had these kind of features. But now we have far more people and still this very small amount of a billionaire class that has more wealth than ever could be imagined. Like, of course, yes, someone can go back and look at, you know, this Persian king or this African king that owned this amount of gold and say they were the richest person ever. But functionally, what the person has access to, the way in which they can control a percentage of the population, it's like, you know, Jeff Bezos is like Genghis Khan, you know, who, you know, took 200 years to kill millions of people and change the face of the earth now a single person by beginning to sell books right and finding a way to evaluate their relative value and meaning and power within the market um can acquire and accrue a a size of 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 social value and and present an aesthetic image that is so powerful over other people that it completely transforms the way that our society functions. And that is something that is new. Yeah. And then, you know, I think the thing that he, he adds to that uh, at the sort of end of this section is this idea of, okay, so the, the capitalist or the baron of industry or whatever you want to call him starts hoarding this wealth, starts hoarding this value. And so what what does that do? That takes gold or money or whatever you want to talk out of circulation, which makes that, uh, whether it's gold or money or whatever, more valuable because there's less of it, supply and demand, right? And uses that to leverage the, uh, and not that this is new to the um, capitalist system, but certainly uh, expounded upon and improved upon for the capitalist. Uh, well, then, okay, well, uh, I will, I will give you this commodity for payments at a future date. Yeah. Which, uh, in Karl Marx's mind, sort of ruins the exchange value relationship because yeah. uh, commodity turns into money to be then turned back into another commodity. But in this case, that commodity is given, but the money isn't returned, 
which is actually taking future money out of circulation, thus making their positions of accumulation and hoarding, as Karl Marx calls it, even more valuable. It, it yeah. is, is essentially taking their, uh, their value and exponentializing it. And, um, and, you know, and it's really insidious and you can see it now more than ever, right? With between Klarna and everything else, it's just like the idea is to put you in not only a cycle of debt, but that actually makes their money more valuable and thus gives them more power and actually takes more of your labor power and turns it into private property. And, and so as private property comes to determine society and debt, you know, further uh, holds the individual as they relate to the economy as a whole, you see the movement of the circulation between commodity and money, et cetera, become more and more broken and jutting and, and violent, right? Mm -hmm. And ultimately, the, for the capitalist fantasy to be realized, they want the constant smooth transition from commodity to money to commodity to money. But what Marx is observing is that implicit to the mechanisms of the system, the only way that the system can grow, the only way that um, that uh, you know commodities can be produced at scale is by hoarding, and therefore, and then using that hoarding to go buy in large amounts, creating these massive shifts, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than being smooth relationships between the use value of a thing very uh, going over to its exchange value as it would be determined by labor. That's impossible within the market, right? And and I think that's something that's important to point out, that, yeah. uh, that the very function of the market requires the hoarding of things, right? When, when the ANCAP or libertarian uh, thinker argues about you know absolute property rights and removing the state and returning to this sort of neo-feudal state of things this is what they are going to exaggerate it's not like this is going to go away well yeah and what they're what they're actually promoting on accident for for the, like you know ancab or any any anyone who's like you know, anarcho-primitivist or any of these kind of crazy positions that one can held. But we'll see much later in Capital that the sort of urge to hoard, which Marx calls limitless, mm -hmm. you know, it's not like, oh, I've, well, I've got this much wealth, I'm good. I'm but good. it's actually yeah. something without end that only promotes more hoarding, that only promotes more uh, centralization of wealth then creates the need for what we call frontiers of places to extract labor at a uh, at a lower cost but a higher profit and basically and at a greater scale yeah. right and at a greater scale and is you know very much part and parcel with the idea of colonialism and imperialism and specifically in the like sort of post-industrial era where you know the the profit margins are much higher 
when labor costs are low. And so that this pushes in order to uh, create greater, um, you know, the, there's a, we'll talk about this much later, but there's this idea of the mass of profit, right, versus the rate of profit. And in yeah. order to increase both of those, but very specifically the rate of profit, you need lower labor costs. And in order to get lower labor costs, you need to go, you need to seek out the frontier where the sort of social agreed value of labor is much lower because they don't have, you know, the kind of culturally built, well, my labor time is at least worth X, right? Mm -hmm. And and so we'll see as this expands that this becomes, you know, the curse of modernity, the curse of the world wars, the curse of imperialism, the curse of colonialism, um, you know, and, and we'll follow that through the, the kind of arc of this book, but um, not to put the end before the beginning, but you know, we're just at the beginning of this book. And this is where these sort of ideas come from, is that we are abstracting our labor, which then becomes through the accumulation of wealth and money, the private property of someone, not us, who has, yes. who has exerted very little labor. And this is, this is the source of the inequalities and the uh, imbalance of the world. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm very curious because, you know, I think the last time I read this book entirely through was about a decade ago. And I am curious. Oh, how much has changed. Yes, how much has changed. <laughs> but I, I'm there throughout. Um, I the question about um, what the way that scarcity can function within an economy and how and the demand that it puts on us psych, psychologically um, is one that I'm interested to see Marx work out because you know one thing that he is dismissing to some extent and and rightfully in most regards is like any implicit value to like a thing like gold or a thing like diamonds or whatever but there is clearly something about the way that the human mind functions that um, puts some type of value and it might be completely apocal like Marx is implying but it might also be a more ingrained tendency that you know we you might find neural basis or something else like genetic basis though I, I would not make that argument um, but I, I'm, I'm curious, like, oh, give me a second. Well, it's, it's the idea of desire, right? And, and it's how yeah. does, how does, how does desire, like what role does desire play in all this? Because that's one of the things that in this first section, Marx doesn't talk about. Yes. The, the hoarding urge in 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 almost always is is an urge of desire and and you know that well that's that's precisely the fascinating part about this is that he is rejecting in a way the kind of individualist tendencies of cotton hague right mm -hmm. and Fichte and whomever else and also of the cat the capitalist economists 
And well, so, and he goes into this, like, just to cut you off real quick, but, yeah. you know, he talks about, you know, one of the ways in which money is developed as different from value. Yeah. The fact that, you know, in this line of like 20 yards of linen is worth one coat is worth four gallons of brandy is worth this amount of gold is that, okay, so gold becomes the thing that value is defined by, but you can, it's a tautology. It's a tautology yes. to be like, well, a pound of gold is worth a pound of gold. Well, that's a meaningless statement, yes. right? And and in doing so, he like totally eliminates the Fichtean conception of the world, right? Yes. Like, I am equals I am is a meaningless statement. It's a meaningless statement, absolutely. And and this is where, like, when we get later into the kind of the the work of Adorno and Deleuze and and Nietzsche as well, right? But particularly in this antagonism and synthesis that I imagine between Adorno and Deleuze, where um, the function of human desire becomes so important because for, for Deleuze, you know, desire has become due to commodity fetish and due to the human as commodity, labor as commodity and their lives as commodity have begun, become part of these massive circuits, as Marx will come to describe the immediate process in uh, Capital Two, um, desire is it becomes an entity in and of itself, a reified power in and of itself that consumes and transforms our our society, right? And um, and and for Adorno, right, desire is. It, it doesn't have the same impact on things because will doesn't have the same impact on things, right? Mm -hmm. Because we are largely determined by these forces that Marx is outlining. And really it becomes a matter of reading. Like where does Marx place the individual's um, implicit tendencies in the production of these structures? Or is it largely accidental? that we have tended towards this system of, of greed? Did it just happen to come out of the particular historical conditions of feudalism and end up as it is? Or are there, is there an actual degree of, I, I, I wanna resist calling it fate, but are there forces within the human as a species um, that have produced these accumulative hoarding tendencies. Um, well, right, and and you know this is like totally jumping the horse, but like that's not a phrase, but jumping, jumping the shark. The um, jumping but you know, head. you know, this is the thing, right? It's like, and, the, and we'll through. see this in Marx. It's like, and, and or or maybe even beyond Marx, but like Marxism and Leninism and and these things is that the development of these tendencies are necessary for the development of the next stage of humanity or the next um, social arrangement, shall we say. Yes. Um, but, you know, it, sort of in the idea of historical materialism or something that, you know, you kind of have to pass through these um, standards of time that, that then allow the appropriate conditions to then move beyond them. And 
And so in that sense, this study of capital is important because if you do believe in that, and I don't mm -hmm. know, you know, belief's a funny thing, I don't know, but, um, you know, it's a, you can't get through until you understand what you're in. And, and that's what this book is about. This book is about understanding what the hell is capitalism? How does it work? Um, you know, and that's why he starts the book with the commodity because it's the lowest yeah. common denominator of what separates a capitalist society from a feudal one or from a, some kind of ancient or, uh, you know, indigenous, uh, you know, socially uh, self-sufficient sort of society. And then that is the fact that our society is run on the exchange of commodities. And so what, what does that mean? What the hell is a commodity? What makes a commodity? How does it work? And that's what this, and, and that's what this book is about. Absolutely. And I think this comes full circle back to the beginning and this question of nature and this relationship between mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. the idealist dialectic and the materialist dialectic that we were working on last episode, which is that, you know, for Hegel, right, in the uh, in the serial stages of the dialectic as it transcends, right, or as it imminently produces out of itself, these sort of serial moments of transcendence, right? contained within each stage is the last stage right and so there's this sort of intimation of this kind of historical um power right but it's largely ideal right you you imagine that like the the ideas of the past are carried within the people of now but this person over there doesn't have access to this knowledge and this person does right and so in their actual stages of knowledge it isn't so universal right He's more uh, essentially to to go back to the question that um, Zizek uh, comes to. Mm -hmm. He's both uh, talking about this kind of mystified movement towards freedom, but also is describing the mystified cyclic processes by which capitalism reproduces itself. Um, but with Marx, um, there starts to become a more genuine sense of what one would mean by freedom right because whether we're talking about the capitalists and the choices of the market whether we're talking about um the kind of liberal ideals of the state and the the, the idea that democracy brings freedom right or um the philosophical concept of hegel where a person kind of frees themselves through reaching a greater understanding and therefore produces a society of greater understanding. Now we see the reason why there is a negative, right? The reason why there isn't, there, there hasn't already been the realization of this higher, greater force because actual um, organizations of society do not work out in that way. And in that regard, Marx does show that there's an evolution to human behavior, a dynamics of human behavior, but there's also an implicit sort of um, domination of other people within that. Next time, we're going to be going into part two of Capital. Um, uh, Marx starts to get more specifically into the labor process into exploitation, into alienation, which Hegel touched on earlier, as well as um, 
his concept of valorization and his ideas on the working day, which are extremely influential to both Marxism in general and post-Marxist thought, um, but also I would say our general understanding of like critique of capitalist life and life under liberalism. Well, and it's and really sometimes exciting. I feel like Marx just like screwed us all over because like as much as liberal economists hate Marx, they, I mean, the, 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 he describes our life. So, yes. uh, so take that as you will. Um, but yeah, so we'll be dealing with those topics and, and really the like general thrust is we went through this process of describing trade of commodities of use value versus exchange value, the development of money. And this next section is really going to take us from money to capital to what makes capitalism different than other forms of economies that have existed, um, you know, throughout, uh, throughout time. So um, it, we're really getting to the meat um, of the book next and, time. And I think, and, and since we're going to be going through this book in whole, it, it's important to get some of these technical elements down because there's a way in which Marx has been also rendered in our, as a commodity, right? Like, totally, yeah. You know, we've mentioned it before in in jest, but there was the photo shoot of Grimes. Um, you know, I think it was, you know, she'd had a child sometime before with Elon Musk, and she's really they, they had just split up. They just split up. That's she, correct. Yeah, and she's dressed and, in that like funny neo futurist uh, yeah. thing and reading. What was no, she reading? Was she reading it was Communist, Communist Manifesto? Manifesto? Yeah, because she like, wouldn't so carry around on the ground, 10, sitting on the ground at, at some point. But like that has happened to Marx. And uh, if there's anything that, um, because it, we can't say the same thing about Kant and Hegel. People just don't give a fuck about Kant and Hegel. You know, there, there aren't people screaming on Fox News about Hegel. Um, right, or, right. You know? And if they were, they might be like, well, if we just listen to Hegel or not, yeah, yeah, know, yeah, yeah. And, and Trump should be king, and, and, and yeah, I mean, you you know, you, you have the Ben Shapiro types who will, uh, you know, go back to Aristotle or some weirdo like Tim Pool who will obliquely uh, reference John Stuart Mill, who Marx just eviscerates in this book, which makes me so fucking happy. It really like, did. We'll we'll like, try and give you a little snippet of it in the credits because it's fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, ultimately, uh, we need to get these details down because, you know, in his work towards freedom, even where he makes mistakes, we can work towards freedom, right? Well, right. That's isn't that the the aim of this? Is a absolutely freedom? And I, yeah, and I think it's the aim of text of the matter right, is to like work towards a little bit of freedom through kind of the engagement with these important works. And, and you know, Marx is an exemplar of that. And so it's going to be real fun. Cue pretty American flag with an eagle flying past. Freedom! Uh, but, but, but in all seriousness, that I think is our aim. And, and we appreciate you guys tuning in. Um, this has been Text of the Matter. This is part one of Capital, uh, 3.1, you can call it, of our kind of series of German idealism and 
bringing us to the the current day. Um, but thank you all for tuning in. Uh, we have a Patreon if you want to support us. You can find that at textpatreon.com or whatever the fuck it is. Just like text the matter. Um, find us on YouTube. Please follow us. A new brand is our channel. And uh, we're also on Twitter and Instagram and sort of on Facebook. Spotify. We're on, we have a Facebook group. Yeah. And if you're not into videos, we all our shit gets posted to Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. So um, please listen that way if that's easier for you. And um, hiya on that note. <laughs> Audi, my Marxist babies. Later. Bye-bye.